Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for our class, Why Should Jews Care About a New Interpretation of the Christian Apostle Paul? And I would like to thank our co-sponsors for today's event, Congregation Orzion in Scottsdale, and would love to welcome Andre Ivory to introduce today's guest speaker. Thank you, Alex. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure for Congregation Orzion to uh, co-sponsor uh, this lecture today, um, as we do for so many throughout uh, the calendar year. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce to you today Dr. Uh, Mark Nanos, um, who is a known lecturer and author of many books and articles. I'm, I'm interested to hear what he says. I have a personal interest in, in this, today's topic. I uh, received his PhD um, from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and uh, an honorary PhD from the University of Lund in Sweden. Um, his book, The Mystery of Romans, won the National Jewish Book Award in Jewish-Christian Relations in 1996, and he is a co-founder of the Paul Within Judaism section of the Society of Biblical Literature. I'm looking forward to your remarks today, Dr. Nanos, and um, it is my pleasure to turn the proverbial floor over to you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for uh, tuning in today. And um, I hope that the question that I pose was not insulting to you. Uh, in, in, in an obvious sense, uh, everyone should be interested in things around us in the world, and uh, certainly Jews should be interested in all sorts of things. One could ask this question about anything, and you could say, well, I mean, pure curiosity, or because it affects human beings, or because it affects Jewish people, and so on. But I tried to pose it in a way specifically about uh, the Apostle Paul, and I put the um, brackets for Christian there to bring attention to the fact that this is actually... Um, uh, something that can be challenged, that that Paul was a Christian figure, as amazing as that may seem. And uh, these new interpretations of Paul, which I've been a, a part of and will talk to you about, have tried to approach the texts that were written by Paul as first century Jewish texts that preceded Christianity. And um, Christianity, like rabbinic Judaism, was not present in the first century. The antecedents to both were present in what we call Second Temple Judaism. And in fact, most Jewish people, like most Christian people, don't know that much about Second Temple Judaism. They mostly know about rabbinic Judaism, and their interpretations of the Bible and Second Temple Jewish texts, uh, like for Christians, are often backwards looking from what they think they know, framing a world that was developed in the, in the post uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 world of the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, when Judaism as we know it and Christianity as we know it, both really began uh, to develop and emerged. So there's a bit of an anachronism built into what most Jews know about uh, first century texts like Paul's because most Jews are informed about those texts uh, assuming that what Christians 
say about those texts is accurate. And why wouldn't they be? I mean, they're not uh, considered uh, texts in rabbinic Judaism, um, but they were texts in a Jewish world. And this was a Jewish movement. And so part of the new interpretation is just simply to bring a historical rubric to these questions and ask historical questions. Now, why we should care, standard interpretation of Paul as a convert as and as an apostate, which with which I'm sure all of you are familiar, uh, reasons from a negative foil for Jewish identity and beliefs and activity. Um, and these have informed and continue to inform, if not actually inspired, the anti-Judaism out of which anti-Semitism arises. And because um, this influence of, of, and the interpretation of Paul on Christian culture, and Christian culture, of course, shaped Western and in recent centuries, world culture through missionaries and now just through uh, a world culture, the way it functions. Um, this is obviously something that we have to be concerned about as Jews. Now, Christians uh, and Jews have assumed these interpretation of Paul are correct. I mean, they're everywhere. They've got hundreds and thousands of years of repetition. And there's diversity within that, but the major uh, idea that Paul uh, converted from Judaism to Christianity and or founded it and became a missionary of it and created, uh, was, a, was a part of creating, but also assuming that it was already there for him to convert into, that's quintessential convert. I mean, everyone knows about this around the world, even if they've never read anything of his, never been to a church or synagogue. This is just common knowledge. And when you have common knowledge, that that's, you know, seems obvious. And um, it's who would question it. But in this case, because Paul has become this dangerous enemy to the Jewish people, one might expect that his texts would actually have been investigated by the Jewish people. And um, the case is, at least in terms of what we can understand in the past from the literary remains, I mean, we're not present, we don't know, maybe somebody did this, maybe even a group of people did this, but from the literary remains, there's no evidence that Jews have ever, in uh, since the church years of, let's say, the third and fourth century, the emergence of Catholic uh, Christianity, have ever actually gone to Paul's text with an open mind and said, what if these uh, texts don't say what Christians think they say? It's only been in the last decades, and my, my research uh, is uh, a little over 30 years now, although I first had the idea um, almost 50 years ago. But my real research in this, because I was a businessman, I didn't pursue this for some time, um, I have actually asked that question, as have a few others. And so uh, I have this list here of a few names. Some of you will know because they're, they're important Jewish scholars. Some Jewish scholars that are involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue. Um, Flusser is well-known, Ben Chorin, uh, Taubes is a was a German philosopher uh, who did some uh, wrote some, did some articles, essentially some uh, lectures about Paul that were published. Lapide, quite famous. Wishagrod, I suspect all of you know, very very uh, a famous uh, a Jewish philosopher in recent years, just passed away not long ago. Uh, Daniel Boyarin, quite uh, famous and flamboyant. Uh, then there's Nanos, myself. 
And since my work on Paul um, Eisenbaum, uh, Pamela Eisenbaum wrote a very popular book uh, about uh, Paul was not a Christian was the title. Uh, she learned from my work when um, when it came out and was one of the ones who probably uh, helped establish it as the winner of the National Jewish Book Award, my first book. Uh, Paula Fredrickson's very well-known scholar who has now become uh, and published on Paul. And uh, Ishay Rosensvi is, uh, I think, was a student of uh, Paula Fredrickson at Hebrew University in recent years. So there's there's now a chorus arising in the last uh, few decades, mainly in the last one to two, of Jewish scholars who have questioned, who've actually said, we, we when we look at this evidence of Paul's letters, we're not so sure that the traditional interpretations and the variations on them have actually got the guy right. And this is also true for a number of uh, Christian and uh, maybe not necessarily Christian, but not Jewish New Testament scholars. Um, and I'm going to introduce one of them, Kathy Ehrensberger, who is a friend and colleague of this so-called movement that we call Paul within Judaism, uh, which is meant to indicate, you know, Paul's always been understood to be against Judaism and outside of Judaism. And uh, I began to write some years ago about Paul's Judaism, which I thought was pretty mm, provocative. Paul within Judaism is also very provocative for uh, Christians and Jews, because he's thought of as one who left Judaism for Christianity. So it it's defamiliarizing I think in a useful way to make us pause and wonder if there's something we could learn here. So Kathy Ehrensberger was at uh, Abraham Geiger uh, College in Berlin, the first rabbinic college since um, World War II. Michael Wishagrod, in his journey, uh, uh, interaction with Christianity, I'm not sure of all the reasons for this interaction, but in the early years, he said, I would like to confess it's difficult for me to see how a thinking Orthodox Jew can avoid coping with the Paul and Luther criticism of the law. So there's one reason why we should be concerned, because that criticism has shaped Christian and world culture. And, and, and one can hear it from Jews as well, especially uninformed Jews, who think that's just the way it is, and have taken on sometimes actually from Christian polemics and rhetoric, uh, self-identification uh, and group uh, and group norms. Sometimes those are handled by turning them upside down, making what seems bad into something good, but nevertheless accepting the claims uh, or the way of seeing the world. And so Wishagrod said, Paul demands a response by Jews living in a Christian world. The anti-Jewish Paul of Western Christianity poses a profound existential threat. And in the Europe, and he actually knew how to use the word existential, unlike most uh, newspaper, news people now, um, and in Europe of the uh, mid 20th century, a material threat to Jewish self-understanding and Jewish existence. He cannot be ignored. Pretty strong statement. Now, some years uh, pass, and I, I think Wishagrod's journey with uh, discussing Paul is at least 40 or 50 years long. Uh, some years uh, along in his career, he, he had a new insight. When he actually looked at the text of Paul and Acts for himself, instead of reading Christian interpretations of them, and he said the Paul of Western, and I don't, I'm not sure how good his Greek was, but but he, he might have been reading the translations. I'm not actually sure. I, I wish I'd asked him that when I knew him. Uh, the Paul of Western Christianity does not fit the Paul of the letters at all. 
If you read them with care and in their proper historical setting, you get a very different Paul. The key to this resolution, Wishagrod said, lays in Paul's mission to the Gentiles or the people of the nations and his self-designation as an apostle to the Gentiles. So he says, quote, the letters in which Paul criticizes the law were written to Gentiles who were being influenced to accept circumcision and Torah observance. In so doing, he, Paul, emphasizes and exaggerates the dangers for Gentiles of living under the law. He's sort of bringing out here, and I, and I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with all the way that he's framed this, but it's in the general direction, and he's actually sort of appealing to what many of you will be aware of in the rabbinic tradition, that if someone wants to become a convert, a, a, a proselyte, they're warned. This is, do you understand what you're, what you're getting yourself into here? Um, this is no uh, easy journey, no easy grace, to put it in Christian sort of terms. Actually, then later, some years later, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, first of all, let me finish this. All the nasty things, he says, uh, Paul says about the law are intended to discourage Gentiles from embracing the law and are thoroughly misunderstood if they're read as expression of Paul's opinion about the value of the law for Jews. By law here, he means the Torah. Later, Wishagrod did hesitate about this way to approach Paul. And he said this, there was a time when I was convinced that this was the solution to the problem of Paul, that which I've just uh, presented. I still think so, but perhaps with less conviction than in the past. That's interesting uh, uh, in itself. But ultimately, he phrased this ambivalence as a question. Uh, could it be that Paul was, after all, an Orthodox Jew? Pretty interesting uh, place that he arrived at. Now, I, I mentioned Kathy Ehrensberger, and I just want to show you another way to think about why this matters to Jews by looking at how it matters to a Christian uh, biblical scholar, New Testament Pauline scholar, who um, is she's not an evangelical type Christian. She's a she's she's Swiss actually. Um, she's um, what we'd call a liberal on the liberal end of you know mainline uh, Christian European Christian. She explains her interest in probing Paul and related first century evidence uh, to this. Concern for Christian self-understanding in the pluralistic interreligious world of today. The fact that Christian self-understanding has been formulated over centuries in opposition to Jewish traditions and Jewish people, and thereby contributed significantly to racist and folkish anti-Semitism in the 19th and 20th century. And this legacy probes her to ask, with a focus on the role Paul's of Paul's letters, is this denigration of Jews and Jewish tradition inherently necessary for Christian self-understanding? She doesn't think it is. And she's, as I say, a co-worker with me, uh, a good friend and colleague in this effort to reinterpret Paul's letters, to go back to scratch, to look up everything and including looking at the manuscript traditions, which I myself am not that well trained in, um, but that needs to be done as well because the manuscript traditions are actually uh, expressions of interpretive decisions made between the different options available. And those decisions have been made in the direction of Paul the convert from Judaism to Christianity. And so each one should be questioned. Now, this basically sets up 
um, for you uh, some some talk talk about uh, why, but of course I want to actually show you what difference it makes to come at Paul from a different angle, so that you can see what is um, what the potential is, and uh, hopefully how you can see that this could challenge Christian self perception, uh, which has been formed around a binary contrast with based on a foil about what Jews and Judaism are like that has been de developed largely from polemics in the New Testament, Paul's voice being a major part of that. So most Christians through history who formed these interpretations of Paul, for example, uh, didn't really necessarily know Jews or Judaism, may, may not know any actual people or practices. What they knew was the polemic that they read in the New Testament or in their Christian uh, um, doctrines, policies, and so on, and activities. And so these are um, stereotypes and foils that were developed. And it's not just that they were developed about Jews and Judaism, but they're developed in a binary contrast to privileging Christian identity and ideals as the opposite, as the superior and as the replacement, because Jews and Judaism were so wrong that God turned them out and instead turned the Gentiles into Christians and take their place, what we call replacement theology uh, or supersessionism. So I want to just give you one example of an area that I've worked on a lot now for the last uh, 15 or so years, which is, um, interestingly enough, a, a text of Paul's that has been the most, the place probed the, for the most positive comments about Jews and Judaism from Paul. This was a central text for Nostra Aetate uh, IV in the uh, mid-60s, Vatican II, when the pronouncement that Jews, uh, that, that Christians or Catholics should change their attitude to Jews and see them as also brothers, which is the way Paul, Pope Paul John uh, expressed it. And uh, nevertheless, this very text, which is works around an olive tree, as you see in this image here, has within itself um, is, is a great place to show you the problem where we're at and why it matters to reread these things as historians, not necessarily as Jews, but as historians who try to understand what, what actually happened. But as Jews, because we have certain sensibilities that like women have certain sensibilities that, that, that developed feminism and like uh, people of, of various minorities or genders uh, have uh, because their normal sensibilities when they hear or see a certain way of... So this image was an image of an imprint that was on all of uh, John Calvin, the famous uh, Calvinism that derives from this Protestant, uh, the, 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 the uh, um, important reformer. But uh, if you think Presbyterian, uh, the, the, that's based on um, John Calvin's theology. So this is a mainline way of thinking in Protestantism. And this image you see is uh, supposedly an olive tree. Um, and you see uh, Calvin or whoever this is self-identifying kneeling there. And uh, in the Latin, it says, they are broken off. I shall be inserted. This is a perfect case of what we call replacement theology. The idea is that branches that you see falling or, or from the tree or whatever, and up at the top you see the image is supposed to be God with a sickle uh, pruning off the old branches, Israel, Israelites, Jews, 
And you see these balls that are there uh, where the uh, graft is supposed to be made so that the limbs that you see with leaves on them that are attached to the tree, and you'll notice it's almost every major bough of the tree, um, consists of what's seen as Christians who have replaced Jews in the tree, uh, the tree representing God's people. Uh, often, you'll, you're, if you're aware of that, the church is seen as the new or true Israel. And that this is an image that captures that. Um, there's many things we could talk about here. We don't have that much time, so I'm, I won't try to get into all the little interesting things. But this is seen by Calvin and in Christian culture as humble, as grateful. But of course, as a Jew, <laughs> when you see this, um, it doesn't seem all that uh, sincerely humble. It seems pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty harsh because. Um, it's taking the place of the other and celebrating that rather than um, expressing sympathy for the other. It's actually um, expressing its, its own gratification for having replaced the other. This image, as I say, is in Romans chapter 11, which has been in general seen in a rather positive light. I think you can see with me, most of you, certainly Jews can see that this is not such a positive image <laughs> for uh, the Jewish people. Why? Um, uh, what happened for me is in my very first work, a uh, book that, that won the National Jewish Book Award, I accepted a lot of the translation. Uh, I worked on certain parts, but one can't translate everything when they, when they write a monograph and work on something. They accept a lot of translation stuff and a lot of decisions that were made. Uh, at least that was my, my case. Um, and years later, when I began to be asked to give papers in various, uh, because I started out when I wrote my first book, I wasn't, a, I, I didn't have a PhD. I was not a professor. I was a, was a businessman. Uh, and uh, this was my hobby interest going back to Jewish studies in the 70s. As just, um, I knew some Greek. I lived in, in Crete, Greece when I was a teenager. And, um, and I just suspected that, that the reading wasn't right. And so uh, I accepted a lot of things, and then I began to question them again, uh, as I say, in the aughts and in the teens, and up to this day, I, I just have a book published of, of many of these essays a few years ago. Let's look at this language a little bit and um, problematize it just a little bit. So in Romans 11, before we get to the olive tree imagery, Paul gives a, works with a different metaphor, and he says, I ask, have they, he's speaking about the Jewish people who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the they here. Um, have they stumbled so as to fall? Now, in Christian theology, the answer is yes. Even though the text here says, me genita, no way. But through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles or the nations so as to make Israel jealous. And then it goes on with some other language I'm going to skip over for the moment. But you can see that he's beginning a discourse, or he's actually in the middle of a discourse, but he's in a discourse prior to the olive tree. The question is, have they stumbled so as the fall? And the answer is no. Now, if you look at the olive tree that we, we, we just saw, if you think about that, and if the question was, have the branches been broken so as to be broken off, you would expect the answer that would follow would be no way. But as you saw in the image, the, uh, the answer is, yeah, they're broken off. But they can be put back in. 
but they're broken off. But this doesn't say they've stumbled so as to fall. Yes, they've fallen, but they could get back up. It says, no, they haven't fallen. Um, and if we look down uh, to the bottom here, verse 16, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, here you can hear Leviticus is being appealed to. If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. Now, one could uh, mess with the translation of this a little bit, but it's good enough to make the point. Here we have a second metaphorical development, well, actually two different metaphors. So we're, we have three metaphors now that are all indicating that the point is that the they who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, they haven't been persuaded of that yet, in Paul's view, yet, um, are in. They're holy. They're set apart to God. They're not out in any way. You probably never heard that that would be a Paul view because that's not the way he's presented and that's not the way these have been read. As we get to the very next part, when we finally get to the allegory itself in verse 17 following. But if some of the branches were broken off, here is based on a Greek word eklao, uh, that this is uh, understood to be, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place. This is the New Revised Standard Version. To share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember it's not you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. Now, we can pause here for a moment. We can see that the rhetorical point that the person who wrote this is trying to make is to tell the person who sees himself as the uh, recipient of uh, the, the winner, so to speak, is supposed to be humble instead. That they're supposed to uh, see themselves in a subordinate position or at least in a co a co a codependent position, not um, not replacing. However, you have in the you have here in addition to something that uh, uh, the the words in their place. Um, the Greek I have highlighted here is en aptis. The Greek word en aptis means among them. It does not mean in their place. I mean, that's a big difference between in their place and among them. The King James Bible has among them. And the new revised standard that just came out, uh, updated version, just came out in the last few months. I've just updated Romans for the upcoming Jewish annotated New Testament that's going to be based on this new version. It has dropped in their place. Thank goodness. Um, that's not in the text. The point of the text is that... Uh, even though they have been uh, in some way harmed, that you've now joined them in the tree. So this word broken off here, it's possible to read the Greek as broken off. Don't get me wrong, but it's not necessary. The same Greek word, eklao, can mean broken. It's used, for example, in ancient Greek texts when two wrestlers are engaged and one wrestler reached down to the other's toe and eclaos it. Now, one does not visualize a wrestler actually tore his toe off of his foot and could throw it to the ground. He dislocated, he sprained it, even broke it, but it remained attached. And now in some way not functioning the way that a, a 
a healthy toe could function. And what does the body do when that happens? It has various ways to try to protect it. One of those ways is it forms a callus where a joint has been broken or harmed. Same with a tree, right? And an olive tree for certain. If you, when you look at an olive tree, I have one coming up here in, in uh, uh, the next slide or two. And you look at, they're all knotty and they're full of all kinds of stuff because as they're harvested, uh, uh, there is collateral damage, if you will say. There's, there's harm to it. And there's a lot of um, what we call in English callousing that takes place. In when you break your finger or your toe or something, you get a callus there, a hard spot there. And what is the purpose of the hard spot? It's to save not only the limb that's harmed, but the entire body or tree from harm, from danger, from uh, from disease, from right, from being an open wound. Um, and this, these are translation choices that are available. That would make sense of, have they stumbled so as to fall? No. If part are holy, the whole is holy. If some of the branches were bent in order for a new shoot to be grafted in among them, none have to be broken off. And how many have to be harmed? I mean, if we think, obviously you can overplay an allegory, but... The, the basic point is, and, and by the way, you don't break off a branch uh, in an olive tree in order to insert a, a shoot. In this case, it's one shoot from a wild tree. That's not what you saw in Calvin's image or what you have in Christian imagination that we've been reacting to. But it's just one wild shoot is grafted among them. And something had to be bent because the wild shoot needs to be able to get sunlight. It needs to be able to get water. It needs to be able to eat. Um and, 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 and access the rich root of the tree that is now serving all of these branches. This image would fit an idea that the Jews that Paul is talking about, and he himself being a Jew, seeing himself as a representative of those branches that are not being bent, okay? Uh, that's how he sees the world, but he sees the others as being bent alongside of him. The whole of Israel is still attached. In other words, they're still in a covenant relationship. They don't need to be saved just like a branch that's from a different tree or something that's not part of it, or in normal Christian uh, language, just like Gentiles. But they do need to be rescued. They do need to be healed. They do need to be fixed. Paul does see them as uh, in a um, an estranged position, in a uh, you know, maybe a colloquialism like in time out in school or at home, um, because they're not um, they're not on board yet. He doesn't see them rejecting, because he doesn't think they're persuaded. Just like a child, you don't throw them out of the family because they didn't get the message yet or didn't uh, 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 live up to your expectations yet. You discipline them. You try to bring them in and, and into uh, agreement. And uh, that's what he's trying to express here. Then the language changes to very, very caustic language, much more so than the translations bring out to what he says to this one wild shoot that he then, that he then in a rhetorical sense, uh, allows a voice. And he says, you would say, hey, they were broken. It's not the word off. They were broken so I could be grafted in. 
And then it doesn't exactly say that is true, but it sort of says, okay, okay. They were broken because of their, and it says unbelief, but the, the Greek word here is more like unfaithfulness. In other words, they, they, were, they didn't trust this message, but you stand only through your trust. So don't become proud. And the, the next word is not, but stand in awe. The next word is, but be afraid. So he's, it fits the idea that he's trying to say to the, the, the one who's become a follower of Jesus, at this time there's no Christian, who is a, not a Jew, who might think, well, gosh, these other Jews don't get it. I get it. I'm superior. I'm in their place. All the things that Christianity did come to think, there was a text that should have prevented that from ever happening. And this is that text. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details. As I say, there's lots here. I, I've written, I say, books about this. I'm still writing about this uh, as I discover things. But when he um, when he is posing the language of the wild shoot and confronting it, he does use the word cut off for them. He uses the word that's used for for uh, actually for pruning or, or topping a tree. It's a different Greek word. It's not based on eklao. It's based on ekopto. And that does mean to cut off. So even in the metaphor, Paul introduced something that, that should have created um, a distinction, but instead is translated the same, same. Broken off is used in both cases. And, and one understands in allegories, you know, things like this can, can, can happen. Here you have a uh, little bit of a picture of a tree. You see how it's so gnarly, these olive trees, they get really gnarly. They do have, can have grafting. I don't know if this one has grafting or not. This is actually, uh, uh, this is actually one that is a, uh, a dwarf uh, olive tree at uh, Huntington uh, Museum and Park in uh, California. And then we come to the, the, the part that uh, I'll more or less finish up on here. Um, this is, I would say, understood to be the most positive statement about Jewish people who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah in all of the New Testament, and certainly all of Paul. Um, <clears throat> so he's still talking to the wild shoot, or he stopped talking directly, but now the metaphor is still sort of at play. Uh, but now he addresses the non-Jews who believe in Christ in Rome. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and, uh, and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. And the normal translation is, a hardening has come upon part of Israel. Now that doesn't sound very, very generous, a hardening. Uh, when we use the word hardening, who, who, who's the famous figure in the Bible that's hardened is Pharaoh's heart, right? Now, Pharaoh's heart uses a Greek word, uh, sclerosis, which we we know, uh, right? We all know about sclerosis for as a medical term. It's a, it's a bad thing. Um, but he doesn't use that word. He uses a word porosis. And porosis actually uh, is almost never used in, in uh, Paul's time, except in medical discussions, as I already uh, anticipated for you earlier, uh, uh, foreshadowed that um, it's used for callousing. And then this part that's uh, come upon part of Israel is actually a um, an adverbial phrase, apomerus, which apomerus means for a while or temporarily. And it's translated that way in another chapter in Romans when it appears. But here it's translated adjectivally because of theological concepts that were at work. So this could read, and I argue should read, that a callus has formed 
in order to protect Israel for a while. Until, and now again, I'm going to skip over this part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in is the way this is translated. That's It's possible until the fullness of the nations uh, arrives. Uh, what that means is, is, is very interesting, but I'm going to skip it for the moment to get to this point. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is a splicing together of two passages from Isaiah. Now, um, this is seen to be so positive, right? Because basic idea is even if Christian Gentiles, Christ-following Gentiles would see uh, Jews who don't believe in Jesus as out, broken off limbs, they couldn't be grafted back in. And in this case, the assurance is they, they will be um, saved, which is based on a premise that they need to be saved. Here's the interesting thing that I only discovered a few years ago when I finally looked this up. And I can't believe I didn't, but it's the truth. I didn't. Uh, I looked up this word, which is based on sozo in the Greek. And guess what? There's pages and pages and pages of sozo's usage. It was a very common word. And it can be translated saved, of course. But saved can mean many things. When a doctor saves you, we don't mean that you died on the table and he brought you back to life. I mean, somebody might mean that, but that's not normally what we mean, right? What we mean is you didn't die on the table. He kept you alive. When we say a plant, a limb was saved, we don't mean that it was cut off and fell to the ground like in that image and then got put back on. We mean it never died. It never fell off. It was never not part of the tree. The proper translation for us in order to avoid the 2,000 years of Christian evangelistic theological thinking about this uh, is something like protected, kept safe, safe with an F. So all Israel is going to be protected in the meantime. But you, here's the whole message here, but you should not do something that could interfere with that. You should not be arrogant. You should be kind and you should accept that you've received a generous gift and you ought to be generous towards the other and concerned about their welfare, concerned about their protection. This is the message and there's language available in English to translate this according. I'll finish up just with um, a, a, another unbelievable uh, decision that's made in the uh, New Revised Standard Version that is not in any Greek manuscripts and is not in the previous translations. As regards the gospel, they, Jews who don't believe in Jesus, are enemies of God for your sake. Of God is in no manuscript. The enemies here should be an adjective, just like the next phrase, but as regards election that is being chosen, they are beloved. Beloved is adjectival, right? So is enemies. What would we say? We wouldn't say they're enemied. We would say they're alienated or estranged, which is exactly what he just expressed. Some have stumbled. They're falling behind. Some are bent or broken. They're harmed. They're estranged. 
They're in timeout. They're in some disciplinary state. I'm not saying Paul isn't criticizing. He doesn't think that they should come along, but he's saying there's a bigger game. There's a mystery here, and you're part of that, and you're supposed to be helping, not harming. But in terms of what this means for Jews who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, yet, in Paul's view, who have not been persuaded, they're not enemies of God. They're suffering. He's trying to evoke empathy, <laughs> not judgment. And then what, he what this is premised upon, which, by the way, is almost always skipped in ancient commentary traditions. There's not hardly any remarks on this. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If the branches on the tree, the branches on the tree, it's God's tree. They're irrevocable. God doesn't change his mind about that. And then the next phrase I stop on. Just as you were once, and this translation is disobedience, but the Greek word is epithesata to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, apitheia. This Greek word is not based on the opposite of obey. It has the ah sound to make it not. It's not based on obey. It's based on being persuaded. Just as you were once not persuaded to God or of God, the God of Israel, the one God, the creator God, but have now received mercy because of their not being persuaded, which is, by the way, zero-sum reasoning. He's, he's a Jewish guy. Christianity and Judaism have this problem of zero-sum reasoning, as if something bad has to happen for something good to happen or somehow whatever. That's just a problem of humans who create these discourses. Um, so now they have been <clears throat> unpersuaded in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may be now receive mercy for God has, and the word is not, it can be imprisoned, but God is bound together. It's a, it's based on the, the prefix sin, which is kind of with, for God has bound together all in unpersuadedness. And he starts the next chapter after this, after he's thrown up his hands and said, God's bigger than anything I can explain to you with a therefore, therefore. Present yourself to God. Therefore, behave the way you should. Therefore, all the Christian um, uh, prescriptions of how you ought to behave and think are based on this togetherness in this plan, not the uh, replacement and that they're out and the judgments and the they've they have uh, rejected. All of that language is not what Paul is trying to give the impression of here. It's not a matter of rejection. And, and by the way, just to stop on this, this is a real problem in discourse that I'm, I'm working on now on some new projects. To reject a truth claim is not the same as rejecting something you, you believe in as truth. You're being faithful to what you believe in. And you need to think about that. Same for Christians. I don't think most Christians are rejecting Muhammad as their prophet because they believe he is, is their prophet, but they don't like it. They're not persuaded of. It. And this is what Paul is working with. This is the discourse that he's working with. As I said, I, I, uh, I, I will stop there. So we have some time for some questions and discussions. The essays that give you all the details of this are available in my collected essay, uh, volume two, which was published in 2018. It's uh, available at uh, Whiffenstock uh, Publishers. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Dr. Nanos. Um, yes, we'd love to open up the remainder of our time together to questions or comments. Um, please feel free to raise your hand and then you can unmute or you can always write things in the chat as well. Uh, hi, Boris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, discussion, Mark. You know, I really appreciate that. And I like how you changed from uh, amateur into professional in this field. It's 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 really encouraging. So not everything lost for us who might uh, might follow you. But the question I actually posed it on chat, but I, I'll kind of reread it again. That even Paul did not cut off Jews from his next movement, just thinking that they are not persuaded yet, but they possibly could. He per personally, as I understand it, saw his mission primarily in bringing the Gentiles into the fold of new movement. And sooner or later, it meant separation between those two movements. And a new movement had to break away from an old one, had to denigrate it to prove your its own superiority, so to speak. So whether he meant one thing or another, he was at the beginning of a movement that became wildly anti-Jewish. So how we interpret that and whether he was a good guy and did bad thing or whether he uh, meant well, but everything went wrong or right, it really doesn't matter because the new movement sooner or later had to turn again Jews for regardless of his uh, personal beliefs. And that's how I view it. I, I, I don't think he was anti-Jewish. I don't think he was anti-Semitic. But I think the movement that he helped creating or created, basically, had to do that. And, and we have to acknowledge that, that based on all his writings, that the subsequent generation of thinkers, of early father, church fathers, were absolutely had to turn against Jews. Otherwise, they would have never separated. I, I stop on this, wonder what you think. Yes. Um, well, it's very complicated. Uh, I I have to agree a little bit, but mostly disagree. Um, I have to agree because all movements that um, believe they have the answer uh, and that other subgroups of that same identity. I mean, it happens in modern Judaism, uh, no less than it happens in Christianity and Islam and any other form, uh, large or small, any group eventually that takes a position thinks that they're superior to uh, those who don't take that position. So that's a normal human and, and social thing. It's been studied in social identity theory, which was part of my dissertation work. And that's just normal course of, you know, that that is some refer to that now as sort of a soft supersessionism, meaning you know, we always think we're more right, obviously the choices we've made than other choices. In that sense, I, I, I agree, something was going to happen that was um, sectarian at least. And I think that's a better way to look at it. It would have been a, a certain kind of Judaism. It was becoming a certain kind of Judaism and he was a part of that. The fact that he was going to non-Jews was not necessarily unique. Other Jews, 
were also, and I think he was doing that before his uh, convictions about Jesus changed. I think what changed was the message for the non-Jews to bring them into the um, the sphere of the one creator God instead of what Jews saw as these other false gods or not gods and so on. But what really happened historically was um, his message was quickly confused. And it makes sense that it would be confused because as non-Jews began to populate these movements and he did not permit them to become Jews in the way that rabbinic Judaism later did as proselytes, well, that creates a problem, right? They have to solve. Uh, in social identity terms, we, we, we would say, you know, they therefore have to turn this upside down in some way in order to create the self-esteem and access to goods and so on. And that's what actually happened then with the church fathers and so on. And they, they were not trained in Judaism. They didn't read this within Judaism. And Paul was not bringing anybody into some movement other than Judaism, but they were. And they began to distance themselves from Judaism to make clear what they were doing as Gentile Christianity. And so in that sense, it's, it wasn't necessary. It didn't have to go that way. It did, <laughs> it did go that way, okay? But it didn't have to go that way. And um, whether it whether it did or not, reason that it kind of went that way and stays that way is because what we have left is this rhetoric, and this is what Wishagrad was pointing out. We have this rhetoric written to non-Jews. It's like reading somebody else's mail, but you don't know the context. You're not the insider. When when I like to use the example when. Uh, parents are talking to their teenage child and their teenage child wants something and says, well, all the other kids have it. And the parent polemicizes either that other kids or their parents. And if all you had was that because the window was open, you would miss the rhetorical point and you would create views of the other, of, of, the, of the, the other family, of the other kids, and then they get concretized. And that's what happened in Christian theology. But if you put it back in the context where he's trying to dissuade the non-Jews and make them feel full members and, and reassure them they should stay on this path and they should be generous and kind and, and, and handle the suffering from their peers because they have a different point of view and so on. If you put it back in that context, it doesn't have to go there and we don't have to allow it to keep going there. And as Jews, we can respond to this Christian discourse and say, well, you know, actually, Paul can be read very differently than that. And you don't have to continue to, 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 to develop this othering uh, based on Paul's voice. At least that's my part of my answer to you. It's actually a big topic, and I appreciate what you're saying. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I would love to argue with you, but I don't want to resort <laughs> that discussion. Maybe on email somehow. Sure. You're welcome to. Thank you. Um, I have another question that was sent privately to me in the chat, so I'll read it out loud, um, which was, does Luke's portrayal of Paul in Acts jive with the Pauline epistles in terms of supersessionism? I hope I pronounced all that correctly. Yes, you did. Um, that's a very good question also, and it depends on who's going to give you the answer. Uh, in my view, um, which I don't do much with in my work so far, uh, because there is a basic uh, prejudice in New Testament scholarship against Acts of the Apostles' presentation of Paul. Acts' presentation of Paul can be understood very much to comport with what I just presented from Paul's letters. 
It can be read as understanding Paul to be a Torah observant Jew who was promoting a reform movement within Judaism and reaching out to non-Jews to include them. But it can also be read, some negative statements in there that are a part of the polemic and the, and the interaction can be read and have been read um, as Paul the convert moving from Judaism to Christianity. So it could be read either way. I think the I think along with some others, and actually it's kind of a growing, uh, like the Paul within Judaism movement, the Acts within Judaism uh, is a sort of a growing movement now that has ha in the last uh, decade, let's say. Although there were people moving this direction that I learned from um, uh, Scandinavian uh, Jakob Yervil in the 70s was already moving this direction, that you can read this these texts to corroborate uh, this Paul within Judaism approach. And I think that, that they should. And of course, there's a lot more details about that that could be given. But there are some people now, if you're interested, there are some people now. Um, Isaac uh, Oliver is uh, one, a scholar who's writing on Acts of the Apostles from that perspective. And uh, you might look up that name and you'll see the, some recent work in that direction. Thank you. Um, I have another question that was also sent to me, so I'll read that one next. Another verse that Christians use to support replacement theory is Romans 9, 6, which the NRSVU translates as, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all those descended from Israel are Israelites, to say that ethnic Jews are not true Israel, but Christians are. What do you make of this? That is uh, such a good question. I am running into this text all the time. And in fact, one of the most famous uh, and influential New Testament scholars, this is a central text to his whole uh, theology. I've written about this text and published on it both in English and in German, and I'm getting almost no traction, which is very interesting. Um, the Greek here doesn't have verbs, uh, this little phrase uh, that they translate generally as um, not all are Israel. Uh, uh, or not all of Israel are Israel or something like that. But the, the phrase can be read in various ways because it's very enigmatic and very, and so it depends on the context, how you read it. First of all, the context is the two verses before this have just said about the they, the Jews who are not followers of Jesus, they, to them belong the gifts, the calling, the, 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 the covenant, the Messiah, um, the cult, the temple cult, the whole thing. It's all been positive. To them, still belong it in the current, okay? So then all of a sudden he would say, yeah, but not to all of them. The ones that don't believe in Jesus are, are out and we instead are Israel. Well, there's lots of problems here. First of all, as I, we're reading in chapter 11, which follows nine, he doesn't refer to the people he's writing to who are not Jews as Israel. The they are still Jews or Israelites, right? He doesn't switch from that. He doesn't have a concept that they're the true Israel or he would change what the pronouns are. He would change the direction. There's still something different. Gentiles who are not, who are Christ followers are not Israel. He doesn't address them that way. He doesn't view them that way. So that's not where he's going. They're among Israelites. So this phrase can be read as a question. Are not all of Israel Israel? That would follow what he just said in the two phrases before. It can also be read as a statement. Not all are Israel. They are Israel. You won't find those translations in any Bible that you can pick up. And you won't find them in almost any discourse among Pauline or New Testament scholars. 
but they're not only valid, they're more probable from what was said before and what follows afterwards in the whole argument. So I leave it there to you. This is one of those things where theology drives translation, as it always does, right? Translations are always interpretations, and it's stubborn. Thank you so much. Um, that brings us to our time today, but want to thank you, Dr. Nanos, for joining us today, and thank you all for tuning in as well. Uh, next week, we have a great event coming up the uh, Minkoff Memorial Lecture with Rabbi Sharon Browse, and that will be in person if you're in the Scottsdale area, but also on Zoom if you're not, um, on February 22nd at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. So hope you can all join us for that as well. And thank you again. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.